for another Lord's Day morning, bringing us safely through another week and bringing us back here to the place where we gather with your people and we gather around your word. We pray that you would make your word plain and clear to us and help us to receive it and uh, feed upon it in our hearts and uh, to meditate on it and profit by it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, we continue today with... Oh, I didn't push the right button. That wasn't on the clicker. That was on me. With Ephesians chapter 3, in, continuing actually in the book of Ephesians, last week we finished chapter 2, and uh, now we're beginning chapter 3. And so I'm going to try to cover the first 12 verses today, and I'll begin by reading them. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, how that my revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which, when you read, you may understand my knowledge of the mystery in Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by his Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, the grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Oops, there we go. Oops, no, 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 no. Only one. Come on now. There we go. And to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ or in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him therefore i ask you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you which is your glory okay well let's think about these verses and meditate on them together whoops no, no. Hmm. We'll get it in a minute. There we go. Okay. It eventually works. Verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles. Now, here Paul begins to tell the readers that because, as he told them in the last chapter, the verses just before this, and remember, uh, there were not chapter divides in it when he wrote it, nor were there verse uh, divides. Now, those were put in later, and they're helpful to us, but remember, they weren't there in the original. So uh, he, he begins to tell them that uh, because, as he said in the last chapter, they are the component parts that are being assembled into a temple for God's dwelling, he prays certain things for them. And we find this pattern in some of his epistles. In fact, here we are in chapter 3 of Ephesians, and we're just coming to it, and we're going to pause before we get there, sort of a dramatic pause. where We're about to hear what Paul prays for the church, but we're not. We're going to hear something else first, but it's good stuff. Actually, back over in Colossians, we've, we encounter that in the first chapter. He says, this, this is what I pray for you. I cease not to pray for you, etc. And he says what he prays for them, and that's, that's good because those are things that God wants to accomplish and to have accomplished in the lives of believers that we want, therefore, to see accomplished in our own lives by the power of God. And we want to cooperate with the grace of God in, in making those things real. And those are also things for which we want to pray for others. So Paul is going to share this prayer, um, but not yet. So he starts out to do this, and then there's a dash at the end of the verse that indicates that he's going off into a digression. It has been said that very smart people are prone to go off into extended digressions. Uh, that may be. 
College professors are also somewhat prone to do that. Uh, and long digressions, and, and of course the trick when you go off into a long digression is to land on your feet back in the original uh, topic and be able to go on from there. What's bad is uh, you go off into a long digression and then, oh, how did I get on to this? What was I talking about? Not that, that, not that I would know anything about that, of course. But at any rate, Paul's going to go off into a long digression. And of course, he is going to land on his feet back in the original discussion. This is a good and necessary uh, digression. It's going to go on for 12 verses. So he's going to point out some things to them. And we're going to see them here, and they're important. So we proceed. All right, verse 2. If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you. Paul had apparently decided that his statement that he was serving for the sake of the Gentiles, and the the prisoner of Christ for you Gentiles. And you know how it was. Every, Every town he went into, it was on account of the Gentiles, in a sense, or on account of his witness to the Gentiles, that he wound up getting in trouble. He would go to the synagogue and he would tell the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. And some would believe and some would not. You know, kind of mixed feelings. Well, that's really weird, Paul. Or, um, yes, or whatever. The various responses he would get. But, you know, that's you know interesting topic of discussion here among, um, among the uh, people in the synagogue. But then, when... They were not hearing anymore. No, no more converts were being made in the synagogue. Paul would go and he would preach to the Gentiles. He'd go right into the marketplace, into the town square, the Agora, and he would preach, Jesus is the Son of God, and uh, salvation is through him, and you Gentiles can be saved through him. Oh, boy. Then watch out. Then the Jews go out and hire some crass and lawless sorts of fellows and start a riot and have Paul whipped or uh, dragged into the arena or who knows what. That would be the way it would go. And he was always getting into trouble for his witness to the Gentiles. And so he said, you know, in the first verse, he said, the prisoner of Christ for you Gentiles. He'd suffered for his witness to the Gentiles. Now he apparently feels, and led by the Holy Spirit, knows that this requires some further explanation, or that further explanation would be helpful to them and to us. So he says, if indeed you have heard. Now this is Paul's understated way of calling their attention to what they all obviously already knew. If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God was given to me for you. Well, he had preached the gospel there in Ephesus and they had that church had come into being as the result of Paul's ministry. So, um, yes, they had heard about that. Of course they had heard about that. Not only heard about it, many of them had heard it, had heard his dispensation of the grace of, uh, the grace of God, which had been given to him for them. So, of course, they knew. It was reminding them of what they already know. And a lot of times, that's what we do. In fact, I feel like that is all I do, in this uh, Bible study hour, you all have heard these things before. I think you pretty much all know them. I might rarely say something that you didn't know before. Uh, double check that. It's not a mistake. But uh, generally, I remind you of the things that you know. And uh, that's important for us. We need to be reminded of the things we know. So he's going to remind them that, you know, God gave me a special charge, mission, burden, job, task, whatever you want to say, to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Dispensation here means stewardship or distributorship, the job of handing out what had been handed to him. You might almost use that old uh, English term, not, not literally old English, it's actually modern English, but it's archaic modern English, of the term almoner, which... Uh, doesn't at all mean someone who sells nuts or anything like that. An almoner was someone who distributed alms. So there were some, I suppose, uh, people that were very rich 
and maybe wealthy businessmen, and, and they just didn't have time to figure out who all should, should get uh, their charity, their gifts that they were giving out to the poor, so they would actually have someone who would be their almoner, and this, we might say their steward, in distributing their largesse to those who were in need, make sure that the people got it were, dis- were deserving and were not uh, swindlers, not like the people you run into sometimes on the streets that you just pretty much know that they are swindlers. Well, Paul is, of course, not, not guarding against swindlers because God can take care of that, but he has been given the task of being the distributor of God's grace. The grace of God was given to me for you. God was offering the gift of salvation to the Gentiles, and he gave Paul the task of delivering it. Now, of course, that was specially to him in a special big way. He was an apostle. He had seen the risen Lord, and he uh, was the apostle specially to the Gentiles and, you know, really was chiefly instrumental in the spread of the church to the West through the Mediterranean world. And that's important. It's especially important to people like us who... uh, Oh, a great deal to Paul's ministry, uh, many generations removed. So that was true of Paul, but it may be true also of us, who might also have received grace from God for others. That is, to be a distributor of God's grace to others. We might have the task of telling others, or maybe especially of showing others, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is true, and that he really does change lives and demonstrating it to them by our own changed life. Well, Paul reminded them that this was especially true in a big way in his life. And, of course, everybody knew that his life had changed. All right, onward to verse 3. There we go. I wanted to take verses 3, 4, and 5 together because they are, of course, one sentence. In fact, they're less than a full sentence, but they're part of the same sentence. And they relate to each other and depend on each other so much. So here we go, 3, 4, and 5. How that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you have read you may understand my knowledge of the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by his Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. Okay. Um, This actually here we have a digression within a digression, uh, the parenthetical phrase here in the middle of it. How that by revelation he made known to me. Uh, Apparently, sometime after Paul's conversion, well, yeah, I can say apparently, but definitely, sometime after Paul's conversion, God had revealed much to him, and I mean revealed it, direct revelation to Paul. Now, the only direct revelation, I guess if you can even call it that, that we, not like Paul, <laughs> the only direct revelation that you and I have received or are going to receive, I think, probably, I have to put a probably on there because I don't want to put God in a box, but now nah, it wouldn't be the same thing. It wouldn't be the same thing. Um, the only direct revelation that you and I have received or will receive is God's written word. God gave his revelation. We have God's word, and that's, that is a direct revelation from God. And when we read the words of Scripture, we're reading words that are God-breathed and they're God's revelation to us. And so we have a written revelation from God, and it is the whole counsel of God, and it's all that's needful for life and godliness. So praise the Lord for that. But Paul received revelation, direct revelation, from God, uh, not just in that way. He had the Old Testament scriptures, advantage has to the Jew, chiefly that to them were committed the oracles of God. And Paul was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, and he knew the Old Testament scriptures. But after he met the Lord on the Damascus Road, sometime after that, probably after he met, left the town of Damascus, was let down in a basket over the wall, I, I think it was after that, probably, that he received direct revelation from God, not by written word, but, but by well, I'm not quite sure what, what way. Uh, taken up to the third heaven, he said. Taken up to the abode of God. At some point in Second Corinthians, he read that that was true of Paul. Was that during that time? 
maybe when he went to Arabia and he was there, someplace within the, at least what would be the Roman province of Arabia, and he was out in the wilderness and just on his own, and it was just Paul and God. And I don't know, I don't think we're told in Scripture whether Paul was just there, you know, in the body, and, and uh, the Lord was just speaking to him and telling him things or showing him things. Or uh, He said, you know, I knew a man, what is it, 14 years ago, who was caught up into the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body. I know not. Paul didn't even know exactly all the house and how that happened but it happened and God told or God showed a great many things to Paul and I wonder if if this is not fully where he maybe made the qualification for an apostle because he actually saw the risen Lord and he saw the nail prints in his hands and feet and knew that this was Jesus who was crucified and knew that he had bodily risen I, I I'm now venturing slightly, um, becoming slightly speculative there on that, what I wonder. But at any rate, we do know that he did receive directly from the Lord, by revelation, much truth uh, sometime after his conversion. So anyway, uh, by revelation he made known to me, and there's one of the verses by which we know it. And um, he says, I have, um, he made known to me the mystery Remember, uh, a mystery is something that man could not know until God revealed it. So it's uh, sometimes it's called uh, a secret religious truth, but, but it's not secret when God reveals it. Then it's not a secret anymore. Uh, those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children that, uh, forever that we may observe to do all the words of the Lord, uh, Deuteronomy says. So he made known to me the mystery, And then he says in parentheses, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge of the mystery of Christ. Uh, This is a reference back to uh, chapter 1 and verse 9 of this book, where he says, having made known to us the mystery of his will. And just kind of a passing mention. He's mentioned, I mentioned uh, briefly. Or we say I... um, yeah, as I have briefly written already. So briefly, very briefly written. Um, he, um, uh, that, yeah, God made, has made known to us the mystery of his will. Some factors of God's plan that we never would have figured out, never could have reasoned out, never could have discovered if God hadn't shown them to us. Okay, so um, then... Uh, you know, see where I was there, uh, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men. So, yeah, for a long time, you know, um, there were things that God made, no, made known to people in the Old Testament, all the Old Testament law, and he made known that uh, the promises of a coming Messiah, the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent, and all those prophecies in Isaiah, and prophecies elsewhere in Malachi, and so forth, um, where, of the things that he would do in the future, but, but a lot of that mystery remains still hidden, still not made known. And, uh, you know, the prophets, uh, what is it that Peter says, they uh, sought to know what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did, prophesy, did signify. When he prophesied beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that shall be revealed in him. To whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did prophesy these things. So even the things that God did reveal through his prophets in the Old Testament, and which, which gave them some degree of understanding, and yet so much that they didn't understand, they recognized there are things, and even the prophet who was giving it, recognized there are things in this prophecy, you can imagine Isaiah saying maybe, or or uh, some of these other guys saying, there are things in this prophecy that I don't understand. What exactly does that mean? It has borne our sorrows. Uh, what does that mean? And I wonder what all he meant. And when will that happen? Or you think of Daniel and, and prophesying about so many 69 weeks. And what does that mean? And sometimes we wonder too. Um, and I... I I always think of that when I think of New Testament prophecies or prophecies that we believe are not fulfilled yet, uh, such as uh, the book of Revelation and, uh, you know, um, 
the prophecies that the Lord gave about his second coming and how, uh, as is the case of many prophecies, when they're given and for a long time after, we might search what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ was testifying. And uh, I guess maybe it's not for us. Maybe it's for those who will experience it. But we know what we need to know. Anyway, uh, for a long time, people didn't know what we now know that the Messiah is, in fact, Jesus of Nazareth, who died for our sins and rose again on the third day and then ascended into heaven. And uh, what a blessed thing that is, that we get to know that now. We know about the finished work of Christ. They had to have faith that God would provide. As, As Abraham told Isaac, the Lord will provide for himself a lamb. And now we get to have faith that God has provided the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Praise the Lord. Well, I get excited about this. It is exciting stuff. Verse 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. Now, here we have that the Gentiles should be included. And this is one of those things Are there things like this? Maybe other things? I don't know. But this is one thing for sure, that we know this so well. We've heard this so often. In fact, our whole life in Christ, since the day that we came to Christ, and we believed, and for many of us who grew up in Christian homes, now we didn't all grow up in Christian homes, but many of us who are here had that inestimable blessing of having godly parents Grew up in, and, and we grew up in a Christian home. And I think back, I don't remember the first time I heard that Jesus was the Son of God. I don't remember the first time I heard that I was a sinner and that Jesus would forgive my sins and I needed him to forgive my sins. I don't remember the first time I heard that. I remember when I, when I acted on it, and I was still quite young then. But I had that blessing, and, and uh, not everyone has had that. And... Uh, of how you don't deserve it. I mean, wow, that God would choose to bless some of us in that way and not others. God knows, and he gives grace to each one as they need. But anyway, um, for many, you know, since the day we've believed in Christ, and for many of us, that was when we were quite young. That was based on the idea, and, and as far as I know, we're all Gentiles in here. Some of us might be Jews by descent. Some of us might be Jews ethnically, Uh, I don't know whether that be true or not. That's fine. If it is, it doesn't actually make any difference. That's the beauty of it. That's what this verse is about, that it doesn't matter. But um, most of us, I would imagine, are entirely ethnically Gentiles. And to the best of my knowledge, none of us has ever been a practicing Jew who hoped to be saved through Judaism. And so we have taken it, in a sense, for granted. And praise the Lord, it is granted. He has granted it that Gentiles can be just as saved as Jews. Well, of course they can, right? We, we um, like I say, we're all Gentiles, and we've all trusted our salvation to Christ, and we're not practicing Jews. So we've been living our trust in that offer for a long time. The hard thing is to understand that it was once a really big deal. This is something, not with respect to Christianity, but one thing that, I find uh, I need to explain to my uh, history students during the week a lot because I'll tell them, um, hey, something new happened in the 1950s and it was this. And the students are like nonplussed because they can't imagine a world in which that didn't exist, like television, like you know, everybody has a television in their house or something like that. Um, well, that just started in the 1950s, or you could go back earlier to other things that came along. And they can't imagine what it would be like to, to exist in a world where that wasn't the case. There's just sort of this assumption that must have been always the case. You know, that George Washington and, you know, just learned about the Boston Massacre and the Boston Tea Party just by turning on his television. And probably heard it from some old-time reporter like Walter Cronkite, but still... Anyway, of course, that's not the case. And things, you know, sometimes it takes a a minute for us to sort of pause and think about 
wow, that was once a new thing. And this right here was once a new thing. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs was once a new thing. And that's a big part of the reason why Paul kept getting in trouble in all those towns where he went about the time he went down to the Agora and he told the Gentiles, you can be saved just like the Jews without becoming a Jew, without practicing the ceremonial law and being circumcised and all that. You can be saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And that shocked the Jews to the core of their being. That horrified them. That wasn't an abrogation of, of Judaism at all. Christ had fulfilled the law, all the ceremonial law, and indeed all the moral law, on their behalf, and the ceremonial law was no longer needed because Christ had fulfilled it. And this is a new thing. So the mystery was that the Gentiles should be on equal footing with the Jews in terms of salvation. Fellow heirs of the same body and partakers Uh, That's a parallel construction in the Greek. It's something like joint heirs, joint body, joint partakers. The same uh, prefix on each word. Uh, um, Suke Ranoma, Susoma, and uh, Sumetaxa. All with the same prefix there. All together, we we were... um, Heirs jointly, we are heirs jointly, we're of the same body jointly, and we are partakers jointly, Jews and Gentiles together. And the idea is not that either group should, should uh, persecute the other or make faction against the other or mistreat the other, but that we're together, we're the same body jointly, together, heirs together, partakers together of his promise, and his promise is salvation. And all of this is in Christ of course, as chapters 1 and 2 have emphasized extensively, and he continues to emphasize because it continues to be true. Verse 7, Of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. Minister here is diakonos, a servant or a helper. So Paul is referring here not to, I'm an apostle with the power and the authority of an apostle. That's true of him, but that's not what he's talking about now. Uh, He's not talking about, you know, as he was in 2 Corinthians, about his authority within the church. He's talking here about the fact that God had seen fit to make him, whom he is going to tell us shortly, is utterly, who is utterly undeserving of this, utterly unworthy of this, to make him a servant or a helper to wait tables. Remember that's what the deacons did, you know, in the early church, to wait on tables, to distribute the benevolence of the church to those that needed it. And Paul's is God's deacon to distribute God's benevolence to needy human beings who need salvation through Christ. By the effective working, the NRGON, productive work or power in action, the word effective is not actually in the original except that Energeon assumes and includes the concept that the work is effective. I think I used the example before when I was talking about Energeon. If I had a barbell uphill here with 500 pounds on it and I tried to lift it, I might strain and sweat and uh, the veins might stand out on my face and I really might raise my blood pressure to un unhappy and unfortunate levels, but no work would get done, regardless of how much I strained and whatever isometric work I did, because the 500 pounds on the barbell would not move. They would remain rooted to the floor. I don't think I can uh, lift 500 pounds. Uh, I don't even think I could back lift 500 pounds. Uh, Never tried. I don't think it would be a good idea for me to try. (laughs) I want to keep my back intact for a while longer. But uh, the point is, even with our term work as we use it in physics, no work is done if no movement takes place. If you don't move the resistance, no work takes place. And Energeon says, this is energy doing work. This is power in action. Work is getting done. And, uh, and I, the reason I stress that 
is because when God wants to do a work in us and we agree to let him, then he will do his work in us. Sometimes you hear people say, I haven't heard it around here, but in some circles I've heard people say, well, I think God is trying to make me uh, this or God is trying to do that. God does not try to, to do things. God either does them or he doesn't. If it pleases God to do it, then he uses energion, his effectual working, and he does it. Now, we can simply refuse and say, I'm not going to uh, cooperate. I'm going to throw away the grace of God. I'm not going to cooperate with the grace of God. And uh, then God won't do it. But if he decides, and well, Paul, I want to do this in here. And Paul says, okay, and, you know, God does it, and he gets it done. All right. Well, here we go, clicker. All right, there we go. If I hold it just right, it works. Verse 8, to me who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach the Gentiles, to, uh, preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Here Paul emphasizes the greatness of God's gift of salvation and his own unworthiness to preach it. The greatness of God's gift, um, the unsearchable riches of Christ. Have you ever dealt with something that was so great, you knew it was great and you knew it was big, but you couldn't ever get to the bottom of it or, um, or, or, or see the, the whole breadth of it or see to the end of it. You think of explorers first coming to the United States and or parts of the United States, and you know, reaching uh, the eastern shores of uh, Wisconsin and the west shores of Lake Michigan. There, and they said the forests of Wisconsin and the forests of Wisconsin, a squirrel could could go from tree to tree without touching the ground from one side of Wisconsin to the other, and probably across northern Minnesota too. And you just can't see the end of that. How vast that is! And vast forests have always fascinated me since I was a little boy. Or you think of uh, a ship um, that might be at sea out in the middle of the Atlantic or in the middle of any of the great oceans where the, the waters might be two miles deep and uh, the captain might, for whatever reason, wonder if he's coming into shallow water, which in that case would mean he was an incompetent captain, but perhaps very careful anyway. And he has them, uh, he has them uh, haul the lead, uh, the sounding line, and the, a line with a lead weight on the end, and they let it out perhaps to the extent of its length, maybe 100 fathoms or something like that, 600 feet down. And that lead's going to be hanging 600 feet down there in the, in the water. And, uh, it, and uh, the leadsman will cry back from the four chains, no bottom. Uh, it's 600 fathoms, no bottom. And uh, they'll know that they've got water down there beyond what they can measure. I was once in waters like that, not in... The, not in uh, the ocean, but on Devil's Lake in Wisconsin, which is not only rather deep, but also very clear. And uh, my dad told me to throw over the anchor, which is a coffee can full of cement on the end of a white nylon line. So I threw over the anchor, and uh, we fished for a while. We didn't catch anything, of course. But uh, uh, after a while, Dad said, I think we're drifting. Didn't I tell you to throw over that anchor? I said, well, I did. And he said, well, check it. Well, I looked over the side of the boat to check it, and there was the coffee can hanging at the end of a 50-foot straight length of nylon rope 50 feet below us almost got fear of heights in the on, on the in a boat in the water it's like that's kind of creepy i don't think i want to look at that anymore but anyway uh but it's beyond measure right we couldn't measure how deep devil's lake was we sure couldn't with that anchor rope any more than the ship at the sea with its 100 100 fathom line could measure the depths of the ocean or an explorer coming to wisconsin could have any concept of how far those forests reached and all those white pines all that way well so the riches of christ are unsearchable but they're a lot bigger than that uh the we we can't begin to touch i think it was fanny crosby i think who wrote oh the unsearchable riches of christ wealth that can never be told indeed we can't get to the end of it words just do run out and Paul is expressing the same, the unsearchable riches of Christ. And he got to proclaim that. And yet he was so unworthy. Less than the least of all the saints is a grammatical way of, to say in English what I guess, from what, from what the uh, commentators say, might be 
perhaps more directly but less grammatically trans- translated the, the most leastest, um, sort of a, or the more leastest, uh, an, a comparative of a superlative. And uh, maybe you can get away with that kind of stuff in, in Greek. I've heard you can do double negatives in Greek and it just strengthens it or something like that. Anyway, I don't know enough Greek uh, even to be dangerous. But uh, anyway, here he is, the least. Now, why would Paul be the least of all the saints? Less than, excuse me, less than the least of all the saints. I have no idea why Paul should be less than the least of all the saints. Well, he said because he persecuted the church. And that's true. That was very bad. But here... Christ had revealed so much to him and he had been caught up into the third heaven and he was an apostle and all these things and he said he was less than the least. I wonder, now here speak I, not Paul, but uh, I wonder if any of us who recognizes what he or she really is, who dwells honestly on our track record from those earliest days, um, that we can remember all the way down, might not, if we assessed ourselves, be prone to say that I'm less than the least of all the saints. Because I don't know all the the things the other saints have done, but I know the things that I've done, and I'd be inclined to contend with Paul for the uh, distinction of less than the least, but I'm not going to contend with Paul because he's the apostle Paul. If he says so, it's okay, but... A humility there. Who can be worthy for this? And as he said in Second Corinthians, who's sufficient for these things? Who indeed? But he says God makes us sufficient. And God, here God had given Paul this job and what a job it is. And we, of course, don't have exactly that job. We're probably, we probably feel, we probably ought to feel unworthy for the tasks that God has given us of showing the unbelievers around us what a Christian life looks like. And you think, oh, I wish they could see someone who really lives it well. Well, just have us. We might feel unworthy. We might think we're really the less, the least of, less than the least of the saints. But God will make us sufficient to do the things that he has called us to do. All right, we'll get it here. And Okay, it's just I have to click it three times. That's what it is. Okay, verses 10 and 11 taken together. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Welcome. Plenty of good seats available. Um, So, okay. What about this? To the intent that. Well, that means literally for the purpose that. Well, what's for the purpose that? Well, the things that Paul has just been telling them, that um, the reason that he uh, gave Paul that ministry, for which Paul felt unworthy, and well, yes, he was unworthy, of course, but God used him anyway, just like we're unworthy, and God uses us for lesser things too. Not like the apostle, but lesser things. And the reason that God did that was uh, to, you know, to reveal God's long-hidden mystery uh, to the Gentiles, was um, that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. Uh, now, now is in contrast to the um, ages during which these things were hidden. Remember that for thousands of years, literally thousands of years, people did not understand exactly how God was going to provide for our salvation. He knew God would provide for our salvation. Or what they, we knew, I mean, if, if, we, if they read the Old Testament scriptures, they knew God would provide. He was going to provide a way through his anointed one that he would send. But they didn't know quite how that was going to be done. And they couldn't understand that. And they couldn't understand how the Gentiles would be saved. I think there were some scriptures that they, if they studied them closely, they might have thought God's going to find a way to save the Gentiles. But I doubt that I would have been able to put those things together if I had lived back in those days. So these things were hidden. This was a mystery. It was hidden for ages. And now it is made known. Now the manifold wisdom of God. The word for manifold here is uh, polypoikimos. 
um, in the Greek, and it means much variegated. Now, variegated refers to color. You know, if you were wearing a variegated garment, that would mean there were many colors in it. Remember that uh, uh, Jacob gave Joseph a coat of many colors. So it was a variegated coat. It had different colors in it. Well, now, how does wisdom come in different colors? Well, this is really a figurative reference here. That God's wisdom is just of, it's many-faceted. There's just so many different things about God's wisdom and so many different ways that God's wisdom showed up and so many different things that he accomplished um, through his wisdom that we are, again, overwhelmed. We think it's just manifold. It's just much variegated. It's just so many faceted. Maybe have you ever played chess and, and your opponent makes a move and you recognize pretty soon after he makes that move that that move's a problem for you. So you start thinking about what move you're going to make. It's going to you know, set things to right here and get this chess game going the way it needs to. And you think, you know, I think, I think I'm going to move like that. I think, I, yeah, I'll do that. And I, uh-oh, no, no, I can't do that. I don't dare do that. No, okay, so I, I know, I know. I'll move over here. That's what, and you're oh, no. And you, and you begin to realize after this goes on, this other player already thought of all those things before he made that move. And you realize that you're really in deep trouble. In that case, you're up against a really good player, and he has thought of every possible move you could make. Well, of course, God's not our enemy. Praise the Lord for that. He's on our side. But, you know, he has thought of everything already before, including how he would save us. Well, okay. Manifold wisdom of God. How he thought of everything that was needed. Thought of things that you and I probably haven't thought of even yet. By the church or through the church. So that he means that to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by or through the church to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. Now, the principalities and powers in heavenly places refer to the good angels. They're in heavenly places. And so the angels of God who have been looking at this uh, and, and watching God work out his plan of salvation and have been amazed and astounded and moved to further worship because the angels are always worshiping as they have seen how great and wise and amazing God's plan of salvation is and now God's going to show them how it really works when he builds his church and he makes out of these humans who are sinful, who were born sinful. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That's everybody's heart except Christ. All, all of us. And, and who... Uh, you know, behold, the psalmist said, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Not that his mother was, was, in, was committing sin when she conceived him, but that he was in sin when his mother conceived him. He just, we, we were sinners when we started out. And God is going to astonish the angels by showing that he can take those sinners, those poor sinners, and he can make them like the Lord Jesus Christ, by his grace working in their lives. He can justify them so that he can still be just without any compromise of his righteousness. He can still be just and yet save people who don't have anything to offer, have no righteousness to offer at all. He can save them and then he can give them all the righteousness they have and he can make them holy and he can make them like Christ and so he can uh, uh, make known by the church, by all the believers, uh, to the, uh, through, by the, through the church, to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Now, praise the Lord for that. And this all he accomplished in Christ. And this was his purpose. Again, as he's mentioned a couple of times in this passage, this is his purpose before he created the heavens and the earth. I need to move on here, though, quickly because 
as great as this stuff is, and you can tell I get into this stuff, I think this is great. I teach history all day, all week long, and I like that. Um, as the history guy on YouTube says, I have a degree in history, and I love history, but you know, I love this stuff even more. This is better than history. I mean, it kind of is history, too, but it's also future, and it's even better. Verse 12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Access. Oh, people want access, don't they? They want access to power. You know, if people thought that you were a personal friend or maybe a relative of some really powerful person, maybe they thought that you were Warren Buffett's brother-in-law and favorite guy, or I don't know, you knew somebody that was really rich like that, or um, you were his personal friend of uh, Bill Gates or Warren Buffett. And they said, oh, could you introduce me to him? Because I've got this plan for a business I want to start. And, and if he just could hear, I think he'd write me a big check. You know, if, if you could just introduce me to him and get me access to him. And, of course, if you have government power, then, oh, my. Let them think, you know, if you're some high government official, let some foreign country think that, you are the son of a high government official. Hey, would you like to be on the board of our company? Oh, I don't know what I do on the board of your company. Oh, you get a million dollar salary every year and I don't know what else. And they'll put you, they might do that because they want, they want you to get them access. And you know, this is true many, many years ago back in the days when there were kings and uh, so you read some commentators writing about this access. This is like an introduction to the royal presence by one of his distinguished favorites. And that's the way they talked back then. You know, there's the king, and the king can do big things for you. He can really advance your career or, or whatever, or, or, or your court case or whatever the thing is. And so you want somebody to, you know, take you in. What if you knew the king's son? And the king's son could take you in and introduce you to the king. So this is my friend, Steve. Yeah, I know he's not much, but, but you know, I really love him. And, and he's my friend. I'm going to introduce him to you. And, um, yeah, that would be pretty good. And we have access. And that, that to who? To the president of the United States? No. To someone vastly more important than that. Someone who's never going to come up for re-election our election at all. The God of the universe who created the heavens and the earth and we have access to him. Uh, and with confidence, with, uh, we have boldness too. And the word for boldness here, uh, paresion, is uh, freedom or openness, especially in speech, uh, boldness or confidence. So confidence in speech, to speak boldly. And this is how uh, Wesley uh, phrase that, and a little archaic, but I thought, well, he, again, he used such good words, I couldn't come up with better words than this, so I'm going to put it in quotation marks and tell you he said it, but unrestrained liberty of speech, such as children use in addressing an indulgent father, when, without fear of offending, they disclose all their wants and make known all their requests. Now, an indulgent father back in the 18th century was more what we would call a kind father now, Today, the word almost means overindulgent to us. But when children come to a wise and kind, loving father and, and trustingly tell him what their problems are and what they need, knowing that he can help them and he'll know what to do for them that's best. And we have that boldness, not, not a boldness to, to come in and demand things, because good children don't come in and demand things of their father. But when they know their father is wise and loves them, and they come to dad and say, Daddy, this, is, this hurts, and, and I have this problem, and my toy broke, or whatever the children, was on the child's mind, you know, the kind of things that are on children's mind. Whatever the things are that's hurting me, whatever the things are that's, that's distressing me, and I can tell the Lord about it, and it's okay, and he'll know what to do. And he'll be able to do it, too. And we have this, this confidence to come to him. And uh, I, as I think about that, and I've been meditating on that and that this week, I think, you know, I haven't made nearly enough use of that. Oh, I've prayed, but wow, I have access to the God of the universe and an invitation, even a command, um, to come and bring my 
my request to him. I think of the hymn, Sweet Hour of Prayer, Sweet Hour of Prayer, that calls me from a world of care and bids me at my Father's throne make all my wants and wishes known. In seasons of distress and grief, my soul has often found relief and oft escaped the tempter's snare by thy return, sweet hour of prayer. And every time I think about this, I think I need to do it even more. I need to pray more. And remember that God has told us also, and in fact, Jesus specifically told a parable to his followers that men ought always to pray and not to faint. For example, when their clicker just won't get, ah, there we go. Okay, verse 13, not fainting, about not losing heart, because that's what not fainting means. Last verse, and here we go. Therefore I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Paul had mentioned that he was a prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, but he doesn't want that fact to make them discouraged. Uh, which, uh, not losing heart, is your glory. So, okay, it is hard when we suffer for Christ. It is hard when people we love suffer or just suffer, whether for Christ or just plain suffer. It's hard to suffer. It's hard to watch people we love suffer. It's hard when people we've depended on, maybe our leaders have, uh, or, or people that just have been important in our life. I remember when my dad had his stroke and uh, was largely debilitated for a number of months after that and then continued to suffer, even after he had recovered in every other way, but he continued to suffer from aphasia. He couldn't come up for the words with what he wanted to say. And that was hard to watch. That was very hard to watch. And um, that, those things are hard. But God says through the Apostle Paul, I don't want you to lose heart about that. I don't want you to get discouraged about that. I don't want you to feel like giving up, feel like this Christian way is too hard. I just can't make it. Yes, you can. Don't lose heart. And not losing heart is your glory. Well, wait a minute. You're thinking, I thought all the glory belonged to God. It does. It does belong to God. So how can we talk about your glory? It's just reflected glory. The fact that we don't lose heart in the midst of hard things is the tangible is a tangible evidence a further tangible evidence that of that Christ is in you and you are in Christ and the holy spirit is indwelling you and helping you to go on and not to lose heart so uh, as paul exhorted the believers therefore i ask that you do not lose heart whether it be about your tribulations or those of others or any tribulations or any circumstance that may come your way because uh, God's grace is sufficient for you. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your grace that is indeed sufficient for us, and we thank you for your, your word and this passage of it that has reminded us of so many great things and words have failed us and we haven't known what to say. How shall we, how shall we begin? to describe these things. But thank you for giving all this to us through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray now that you bless us in the hour to come. Be with your servant as he brings us your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.